welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Lori LeBay, your host on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, and I'm thrilled you can join us today. We're going to have a really um, interesting conversation about protecting our elders and multiple ways that one group is doing that. I think you will find not only interesting, but useful to yourself and to others. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we are about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people in the trenches. And so maybe, just maybe you can be our next guest. Everyone around the world is welcome. The only one true thing that I hold to is we have to have a respectful conversation. And to me, I find that fairly easy to do. I don't think we all have to totally agree 100% with others. It's about learning and listening to options and others' beliefs and understandings of things that make this world a better place. Now, for those of you that don't know, also Alzheimer's Speaks is kind of our main platform and there you can go visit. We have one section that is just full of free resources. So you'll find everything from being able to access the radio shows and dementia chats, um, dementia quick tips to dementia and the arts, a poetry section, learn about dementia-friendly communities and memory cafes and the Purple Angel, as well as accessing Dementia Map, which is a global resource directory that has over 150 categories that you can check out. Let's see. I also want to mention my book is finally going to be launched here probably not till February, but we're taking pre-orders at this time called Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. And it's written as a children's book, but I think the kids are going to teach the adults an awful lot about this. I would also highly recommend that you check out the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, as well as the Footbar Walker. And again, you can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com for information on both of those. So let's get this party started and let's pull in our guests so we can learn about elder care IQ as well as elder voice family advocates. So Chris Sundberg is with us today and I am so excited to have her. I have heard about her and her work for years from various colleagues, one of those being uh, Alan Caspi, who is a, a good friend to Alzheimer's Speaks and, and Dementia Chats. And Chris is the executive director of Elder Care IQ and Elder Voice Family Advocates, which are a nonprofit organization. As an award-winning former executive and corporate uh, officer in Fortune 100s and entrepreneurial companies, she brings just a great extensive background in terms of management, communication, and public affairs. So Chris, I can't wait to hear about what you are doing in the world of of our elders. So thanks so much for making the time for us today. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate you giving me time. So 
Chris, I always like to start out asking everybody if they've been touched personally by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Well, not dementia per, per se, but elder abuse is definitely where my experience came uh, from. Uh, my dad's body was left for seven days without any wellness check in his room. And uh, I happened to be out of the country in a, a location with very poor internet access. So I hadn't communicated with him all week. When I got back is when I learned he had passed away. His body was there. A neighbor across from him asked the staff, would you please go check on him? I haven't seen him. And they foo-fooed her and said, oh, he's fine. We just saw him. Uh, newspapers were piling up outside his door, yet it didn't occur to anybody to check. And we had been told that if he didn't come to the noon meal, they would uh, come, go and check on him. So definitely had a false sense of security with that. And um, it was after that that uh, I really learned how poorly regulated this business is. And uh, that's when I my eyes were opened. I realized how naive I was, how much I took for granted, how much I believed what they told me. And uh, I was, you know, the typical consumer of, of that time, poorly informed. So we formed together and uh, started Elder Voice Advocates. Wow, that's a horrible story, but I appreciate you sharing that <laughs> because because we're we all believe what we're told, and and you know we we take for granted that that is going to be upheld too, and is common sense, and uh, you know sometimes that isn't the way things play out. So I'm assuming that is that is why you created um, elder elder voice um, advocates. Did, how did you find other people like yourself? Yeah, actually, I would give credit to Susie Scheller. She's an elder law attorney uh, who brought a group of family members who had gone through some traumatic experience, you know, in long-term care with usually their parent and brought us together. And we started out sort of as a self-help group. Uh, but quickly moved on from that and really wanted to, to make change. And it, my background is, you know, government affairs, public relations, this sort of thing. So I immediately turned toward, we need to fix this regulatory system. It was a shambles here. And uh, so we knew we needed to organize and get uh, an organization together uh, this handful of people that included Elon Caspi and, uh, and Susie Scheller, our elder law attorney, and Gene uh, uh, Peters and Kay Bromelkamp uh, were, were the key members that really came together. We had uh, others as well. Um, and we formed and uh, we quickly took action. I, you know, it... Uh, it's been a whirlwind five years. And to be honest, Laurie, I'm, I'm shocked we got accomplished what we did. And I, it, it's a lot of good fortune, tenaciousness. I think when you have passion behind you, it, it drives 
so much better than even a budget, even a big budget, because you feel it in the heart yeah. that this is important and it has to make a, a difference come hell or high water. And you, you know, you just kind of have that mindset. We're going to, we're going to cut through the thick of this. Now you're located in Minnesota. Like I am was, was everybody else in Minnesota as well? Yeah, yes. and Elon now has moved from the state, but he's still on our board of directors. And uh, uh, yeah, we we came together and we really quickly started our work. You know, one of the first things that we did is, is first of all, we knew we wanted to change the laws, so that that was our biggest priority when we started, and that required us to do several things: kind of learn all the issues kind of learn the system and and make sure that we were uh, educated and competent in what we we're going to be recommending. The biggest thing is uh, allowing people to tell their story. It, it was huge. That is probably the single most important factor in our success is family members came forward, they talked to the media, they talked to legislators, they testified in committees. And, and that was the first time I think they really had a face on this really unknown issue. It, it was the best kept secret around. And I was hell bent that we're gonna take away the smoke and the mirrors. And that's what we have been. When you, you, you mentioned you know, it's that passion. And that's exactly what's the energized everybody who's involved because we're largely volunteer driven. Uh, we've been able to get some more funding uh, the last few years, but the first two years, I mean, we started on a thousand dollars in the bank, but we had some core talents in our, our group that enabled us to really get a lot done on a shoestring. I think when you get that passion together and, you know, there's so many more resources than just money that people forget about. It's, it's contacts, it's skill sets, it's, you know, it's all of those types of things that make a huge, huge difference and can really um, catapult you forward in, in ways that um, sometimes big organizations with large budgets can't do. And you don't have any political tie-ins, you know, or, you know, bureaucracy that you have to, well, no, we can't do that because that might tick off somebody. And we can't say that because we have to, you know, they're big donors of ours. Because a lot of times that stuff comes into play oh, as yes. well. And I've run into that just with my own company, Alzheimer's Speaks. People go, how, how do you do what you do? How do you get so much done? And it's like, I don't have to answer to anybody but me. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, really, it's really simple. And when you have that attitude, which I'm assuming you guys have, we're going to do something is better than nothing. Even if it's not perfect, we're going to get it out there and we're going to get known and we're going to elevate and, and create awareness. And when you said, you know, letting people tell their stories. I think stories are life-changing uh, in so many fashions for not only, you know, the people going through this, but people who are, are thinking about um, their elders of, of what could happen and what are some questions to ask and where are some resources to check and things. But, but let's get back, because I know, so with the law, um, what happened here in Minnesota law-wise once you guys stepped <laughs> forward and 
met with Congress and things? Well, we have to back up a little before the law, because the first thing that really happened were two important things. We started telling our stories to the media, mm -hmm. and that was key. And, and, and the more uh, the Star Tribune covered a lot of uh, those stories. And in December of uh, 2017, Chris Sears had that five-part series, Left to Suffer. Horrific, horrific stories. And many of those were, were people, members of Elder Voice. Um, and that jarred the dome off of the state capitol. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just shocked people that this was happening. Then to add on to that, uh, we requested a legislative audit be done of the Office of Health Facilities Complaints, which is within the Department of Health. It was a shambles. It was a mess. People trying to get accountability and, and get investigations, often nothing happened. It got ignored. Uh, they were caught, some, a staff person was caught throwing 2,000 complaints in the garbage, directly in the garbage. It was all a paper-based system. It, and at that point, there were 22,000 complaints a year coming in. It, it, no paper-based system can handle that. That's unreal. And by the way, that was a 560 some percent increase from 20, 2010 to 2018. So in 2010, we had about 4,000 complaints. By 2018, it was 22,500 complaints. Now that's the last year we have available in complaint data, but uh, it, it, it's just astronomical. The problems going on in long-term care just astronomical. So we we needed to uh, bring awareness to that. And the you know Governor Dayton called together uh, Alzheimer's Association, uh, the uh, AARP, um, Legal Aid and Elder Justice Center, and then us brand new little organization, Elder Voice Advocates. I mean, I was astounded that we were brought to the table. The other thing he did that was so unique is he only had advocates. For once, the providers weren't domineering the story here. And he purposefully let, designed it that way. And, and so that hit, the newspaper story hit in um, November, uh, Governor Dayton calls us in early December of that year and says, I'd like you to give us some legislative recommendations. And oh, by the way, session starts in a month and a half. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, but, you know, as a group, they, everybody was just phenomenal, just sat down, really worked it out. Uh, and we did more than just bring recommendations. We brought language, legislative language to him. He accepted every single piece of our recommendations. And we weren't able to get the law passed in 2018 because we had a split House and Senate. 
you know, the Senate uh, was controlled by the Republicans, or actually it wasn't split at that time. It, it was controlled by the Republicans, both Senate and House. Uh, and they, we, they wouldn't even give us a hearing, not even a hearing. Um, so we had the elections in 2018, which then changed where we had the split house houses, one Republican, one Democrat. That uh, And then in the meantime, that we had requested a legislative audit, that report came out and it was scathing absolutely mind-blowing and it was it was so concerning to the auditors that they called a meeting with uh the then commissioner and uh said these these are life-threatening problems that have to be addressed you need to change things now so um so that happened they also another uh, outstanding thing from our point of view is that commissioner left, and that's when Jan Malcolm was brought in. Phenomenal leader, phenomenal. She she really did uh, the elders so much. Uh, um, uh, yeah, helped out in in that they she cleared the the playing field. We she she mandated that the. Uh, industry folks, the advocates, and all the agencies get together in the same re room and all through 2019 hammer out legislation that we all would agree upon. And I entered that thinking, oh, we'll get a few crumbs here and there, you know. She sat with that group. We spent hundreds of hours. She was in that same room making sure that that playing field stayed level, that our voices were be being heard just as much as the industry voices have been heard for decades in the past. And we all had to sign off on this, this final language. Nobody got everything they wanted and uh, it got passed with only one vote in opposition to it. Wow, that's incredible. It, that isn't is it? Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And it's, you know, when you were talking about the complaints from 2010 going from 4,000 to 22,500 in uh, 2018, I can't even imagine what it's like over COVID in, in that right. area um, it, with the staff shortages and things that are there. Our, um, well, I'll ask this question later because I, I want you to keep going on, on other <laughs> things that you have done. But but that's that's incredible. What kinds of changes then took place because of legislation? Well, it, 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 the licensure of assisted living. Minnesota was the only state not to license assisted living, which is incredible. We we view ourselves as such a progressive state, yet there we are, dead last. Um, so it, it important things that it did, it established care standards and infection control standards, uh, new building standards, uh, a, a bunch of protections, uh, retaliation for, for one thing, or uh, giving you a notice uh, one day and being told you got to be out the nets, that kind of stuff. It also allowed uh, people to put cameras in their 
their rooms and not notify the care provider if they suspected some abuse or neglect was happening. So they, they could put those cameras in for two weeks uh, before having to notify the uh, um, facility. The logic to that still escapes me uh, because why should they, they ever have to tell if there's a camera? Um, but anyway, that's what we had to compromise with. So um, unfortunately, then that's when we get the, the pandemic. And those rules, those laws didn't go into effect until August 1st of 2021. So that left two years of very weak you know, uh, infection control was very, very weak in, in the long-term care industry. The care standards were very weak. The protections were trampled on routinely. So I, I really do wish that we had been able to get uh, that much sooner, uh, have been in place before the pandemic, because I think with some uh, uh, infection control uh, protections, it may be not so many would have had to die. I mean, we, we were terrible. I mean, over 80% in long-term care, 80% uh, of the deaths happened to people in long-term care. And, uh, and it's still, that's the prevalent group. But um, yeah, so we, it, it, the pandemic, and I, I guess the other wrinkle I'll say too is early on in the pandemic, the Department of Health was all hands on, on deck to help. And the commissioner came to our organizations, Alzheimer's, AARP, Legal Aid, Elder Justice and Elder Voice and said, I've had to redeploy 90% of my staff to doing the taking care of the pandemic. I don't think I can get the rulemaking done by August of 2021. And the other organization said, oh, we understand, that's okay. And we said, I understand, but please find a way to get it done. Because if we don't, there's gonna be more needless death and suffering. And Commissioner Malcolm went back and found a way to get it done and did it well. And I am forever grateful to her leadership on this entire uh, issue. That required two intensive years of Susie Scheller's time uh, and, and various others of us during the rulemaking uh, just to make sure that those laws were uh, enforced as they were intended. And uh, I have to say, I'm really pleased that much of our recommendations were adopted in rules. And uh, so we're in pretty good shape at the moment. Wow, those are some pretty significant changes that you got pushed through. And uh, Jan, I, I do, I think she was just an angel too, in terms of, she was always calm, you know, no matter what was yeah. going on, it seemed like, but she knew her stuff. She had been in the industry forever. She was well-respected and, um, and that's uh, absolutely um, unreal. Um, so kudos, kudos to you guys for stepping up and making that happen. And I think 
you know, when you said you were surprised Dayton put you on the committee, again, it's that passion, it's the story, it's, uh, I've been there, I know what yes. this is like, I've lived it. Those, those are powerful, powerful statements, and, and once they're spoke, they're really hard to ignore, because people feel that stuff at a heart level themselves. And then, then it gets into the question of how do I sleep at night if I'm not going to address this? Exactly. And, you know, before I got involved, I consciously thought about, gee, it would be easier just to move on and try to forget this. And I thought, no, I know myself well enough. I'm, I can't move on knowing there's a mess here. And I think one of the other early decisions that we made from day one is we would never take money from the industry or, or in any way compromise our decision making. We had to be totally independent. And to be honest, I've even been reluctant to go uh, for state grants because, again, I don't want uh, us to be beholden to anybody when then instead of making decisions for the well-being of the the residents we're making decisions for the well-being of elder voice and without taking care of the the elders sorry that, that that's just not a compromise we we're going to make well and i think too sometimes with the grants and and i'm i'm not a grant person but what i have heard over the years and maybe this has changed but once you write a grant, you have to stick to your parameters. Even if you identify, oh my gosh, we missed the mark here and we need to shift. You can't shift. You have to continue doing what you said you were going to do, <laughs> even though you know it's not going to be effective, you know, and could even do some harm, I suppose, in some cases. And to me, that's just asinine that there's not a slush pool where you can go back in and go. And again, maybe that has changed. But for years, I heard that from people. And they're part, I think what was became more challenging for us is after the George Floyd killing, mm -hmm. the, the foundations were, and rightfully so, you know, really funneling their attention and their dollars toward racial issues and, uh, um, you know, equity issues. And, and it, didn't leave a whole lot of room. On on your your point there, Lori, I haven't really experienced that. I I uh, I felt like we got an understanding ear uh, when things had to shift. Because again, one of the things that makes us effective is we are able to to shift quickly uh, when circumstances change. And my gosh, in these last few years. Wow, have they changed? I'm saying that in regards to to some grants where yeah. you're very much locked in. But you know, yeah. for for an organization like yourself, I, you know, I mean, I can tell just from talking to you, you're fluid, you're opening to listening, and and to me, that's critical. Your your storytelling and your truth telling, I I call that emotional based training, and I think it shifts people from a mindset that they had to a heart set that they feel. And I think that to me makes the difference in the world in terms of pulling people together and pushing things forward. Um, because the, the motivation is at such a deep level. It's not yeah. something wrote you, you've remembered or you've heard, but when you feel it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't go away. It doesn't. And, you know, if we're not out there speaking the truth, nobody will be. 
in one of the situations that we have now, we've got that law in place, that's great. We're still seeing a lot of abuse, neglect. And, and the staffing crisis is certainly, uh, you know, made that much worse. But I'll tell you the long-term care industry has always understaffed, always. So in a way they contributed to the situation that we have right now. And I try to bring legislators' attention back to this staffing sh shortage crisis is creating a care crisis. It's enormous, the impact, I mean, I, I just, we get weekly reports from the De Department of Health uh, regarding uh, in, uh, complaints that they have investigated. They're, they're shocking. They're, they, they are just shocking, the sort of situation that we see. One person died uh, of septic shock, shock excuse me, uh, because her wound was unattended and infected in England. Pain medications have been stolen from people who suffered enormously because they weren't getting the pain medication. The inhumanity of it is mind-boggling sometimes, really mind-boggling. But oftentimes, you know, it, it sometimes you've got a staff issue that, yes, it happens. I'm seeing a lot more of this driven by um, understaffing. And, and, and legitimately, there is a, a, a crisis now. They have a lot of, of the staff really can get a much easier job uh, working for McDonald's and probably the same kind of pay. So we're supporting the staff here. We want to really see staff get a livable wage, all of them. And we want to see uh, if, if we're okay if uh, reimbursement rates get uh, increased, uh, but 90% of it has to go to the care staff. And there has to be an ironclad system that can track where that money is flowing. And um, of course, the industry doesn't like that. So we'll, that'll be a battle we'll have now in this year, recession. Well, and I think one of the, the problems that I see, and, and tell me your thoughts on this, but We've gotten so task oriented that there's we're not allowing relationships to grow. We're not allowing staff to befriend somebody and and really care like it's their parent or their friend. And when you cut that out, you're missing an awful lot. And families will say the same thing as well. I know when I was caring for my mom and I was task oriented and I like checking stuff off. It made me feel good like I was accomplishing something but I was missing so much. And I found I was doing some stuff I didn't really need to do. And, you know, instead of just maybe sitting on the couch next to my mom, even if she couldn't talk, <laughs> just, just sharing that space together, yeah. you know, that connecting on a human level, um, when we push that away, and, and I think a lot of, you know, communities and, and services have, have cut that out. You know, you can't take pictures and you can't do this and you can't do that because there has been some abuse, but it's like the bad apple tosses them all out of the bundle then. And those are, to me, those are, that's kind of the glue that makes things work. 
is letting staff develop those relationships. And, and that's what they want to do. The good people really want to do that. I'm just contacted today by uh, a person who uh, was terminated because she uh, called to question some of the practices that were harming the residents. They started retaliating and then let her go, you know, and and retaliation too is a big lever that are used by so many. But getting back to your time, I, I most staff want to spend the time, they're distressed that they have to quickly run from one to the next and they know they're missing, you know, any relationship building time and, and basic caregiving time even. So I'm very empathetic to many of the staff. Many are, are great people trying their best in a really impossible situation. Yeah, I know with my, my own mom was in a nursing home for 14 years, which is a really, really long time. And she, there was a great team until like her last three years. And on her unit, three staff all left at the same time. They were all friends and, and, but they were, they were like glued. They were, and they had so much fun. Everybody had fun on the unit. You walked in and it was uplifting. They were laughing. They knew their people and their, their information, their data, their personal relationships of likes and dislikes, none of that got transferred. And it was like night and day wow. from then forward. And it, it was a whole different experience. Um, I remember going into um, to the director of nursing because my daughter had gone to, and this wasn't harming my mom per se, but this just shows not using proper protocol um, with, a, with a like leaf bag of, of my mom's clothes because my daughter had gone to clean out my mom's closet and everything was like ripped in half because they weren't doing a two person transfer that they were supposed to. And they, her clothes, brand new clothes were ripped, not even at the seams. And mm -hmm. some, of the, some of the clothes they were still putting on her and we didn't know because you couldn't see that they were ripped in the bottom because she was sitting in her wheelchair. I mean, hundreds of dollars of clothes. I, I was so upset and so livid and there really wasn't a good answer at all. I'm like, so this is why my mom's closet is locked. It has nothing to do with access of other things. It was just hiding that is what it seemed to us as a family. Yeah. And, and yet for years, just wonderful, wonderful care. But that, that change in staff can, can make or break things. And, you know, who, who's in charge or even, even hospice. When my mom was on hospice, we had a nurse that refused to follow the hospice directions because she was an old school nurse and I was livid and I had to leave town and I'm like no you need to follow this I said I'm going to put a note on the wall you can't do that that's breaking hip and I said I don't even want to know how many rules you're breaking right now you're <laughs> supposed to be listening to this person's yeah. directions and you know you really have to you really have to stand up and be forceful at times, and so many people are not comfortable doing that. And, right. you know, when you talk about, you know, the numbers that you're seeing come in and the stories, I also hear of a lot of stories that never get reported. 
Sure. And so how many are there really? Because you have to have, you have to have the energy and, and the emotional bandwidth to do that too. And not everybody has, has that or the time to put into it and to follow it up because it doesn't seem like it goes just boom, 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 the way it's supposed to. Well, you know, as shocking as those numbers are of 22,000 complaints in a year, that's the tip of the iceberg because we know full well, for the reasons you're pointing out, Lori, people are intimidated sometimes or just don't know how to to file a complaint or whether it's a good idea to do it or not. And a lot of them are so fearful of retaliation, they don't dare uh, file a complaint. And I know even for my own dad, there were some things happening that I was concerned about. And I said, well, I'm gonna go talk to management. He said, no, please don't. It'll just get worse. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't argue with him. It's true. My my dad was also in the nursing home. He told me staff were kind of belittling him. And yeah. I I really had faith in the staff and I trusted them. And so I and I knew my dad was having some issues. He had brain cancer and I didn't look into it the way I should have. Mm-hmm. After my dad's funeral, I get a letter from one of the staff saying, I know you shared this with me. And I know I said it wasn't happening, but it was. Because oh. she was afraid of her job. Yeah, sure. And, and she said, I'm going to get crying. She said, your dad was like my dad. And I felt awful doing that. But I had to put food on on, on my family's table. Yeah. You know, oh, and it, it should never, ever be like that. No, never. And again, that's minute compared to what others are have gone through. But as a family member, you feel horrible. The guilt. Yes, I know exactly what you're doing. They protected us as children. Mm-hmm. We want to protect them when they need us. Yeah, it, it, nearly everybody talks about that. It really is something. Can you talk a little bit, and we've touched on this a little bit, but, you know, some challenges with, with industry and public perceptions and, you know, politics, that the whole nine yards there? Oh, wow. Where do you start? You mentioned the politics, and I, I kind of talked a little bit about how that uh, changed. Um, and it, we're hoping that we can get some significant uh initiatives underway this year uh, with a DFL, uh, you know, controlled House and Senate and and governor's office. The industry, you know, has, first of all, you know, 40 some lobbyists uh, among them, Uh, a a nice healthy PAC uh, political action committee where they contribute to candidates. And but that but we soon found that's powerful, yes, but nothing's more powerful than a little scrappy nonprofit organization who is out there, you know, putting a spotlight on on what's going on. And so the industry really isn't happy with us. Um, they hate elder care IQ. I shouldn't 
speak in blanket because they don't all, but there's some who, who clearly don't like it. And we, we've had to be very careful how we uh, roll that out. We'd have to make sure because liability is, is a definite, uh, you know, concern. I'm not terribly concerned, but but for that reason, we use only the MDH data as it comes. We don't editorialize on it at all. And, you know, in, with IQ, we launched that, uh, I think it was November 29th. In one month's time, there were 6,000 visitors to that site. Mm -hmm. And that really speaks to the need people have for really trying to find out Get get beneath the veneer of the nice, pretty lobby and and such, you know, and really understand how good is the quality of the care. Because um, if you believe the marketing materials, I mean, it's nirvana. Why don't I have you tell everybody what Elder Care IQ okay. is and and yeah. uh, and why that was created? Good idea. Well, during this time, we would be helping people. Uh, to try to uh, understand what's going on and sometimes helping them make choices of where they uh, you know, might get the best chance at quality care. And one of the only ways for real uh, quality information, especially on assisted living, is the Department of Health uh, investigation data. And it's not something that anybody should use exclusively, but they should factor that into their decision-making, which even to, to web-savvy people is very, very cumbersome, confusing, uh, and difficult to navigate. It was about a month ago I was asked to speak at a uh, Rotary Club meeting, and I talked about this issue, and that you know, our frustration too, it could, it could take us hours sometimes to help people try to get a handle on this. And uh, in the audience was somebody I knew, and I knew he was a techie, uh, but he came to me afterwards and he said, I can fix this and I'll do it pro bono. And uh, that was Scott Zerby. And in less than a year, we launched this tool. We're going to continue to work on it. Uh, you know, there's there's some issues, the Department of Health uh, data that we link directly to. So people will go directly and see the investigation reports, read them for themselves. We're not interpreting those. They can interpret that for themselves. And, and even, you know, if they... Uh, you know, find that and still want to talk to a place, they have some information to ask them about. What have you done about infection control? How are you handling that? Or whatever, you know, the issues might be. Uh, and we got funding from the Stephen Square Foundation to to get this, this base uh, IQ set up. And we're going to continue to build on it. The next uh, thing that we're going to add on this is fine data. How much have, have they been paid in, in fines? And add the special focus facilities. Are they on the spe special focus facility uh, federal data? Um, and report cards when they become available. So we'll do, it'll 
continue to get a lot more robust. And I invite people to go, go to eldercareiq.org and, and just cruise around. You can put your zip code in and that'll give you everything in the area. And it gives you everything. If they're licensed, that should be there. And they can see that those who have no investigations at all, that doesn't mean that they're not, don't have issues, but it's a good indicator. And they'll see those that have one or two, and then they'll see those with numerous. Can you tell us what federal focus is? I hadn't heard that term before. Special focus facilities. Those are nursing homes that habitually are having uh, surveys and findings that are concerning. So, um, and I would, if they're a special focus facility, I would steer very clear of them because it's many years of, of these kinds of significant issues. And then they have another one that's called, uh, I'm not getting the term quite right, but facilities of concern. So they haven't quite risen to that level of being on the special focus, but they're they're concerning and they're they're working with those facilities. Okay, well that's good to know. Now, is the the elder care IQ just for Minnesota? For yeah, it is for Minnesota now. Um, we've had people approach us about going uh, to other states, but we got we we need to get Minnesota down pat before we decide if that makes sense or not. And each state's so different, uh, mm -hmm. too. So it's it's not terribly simple. But but we're learning a lot, and we're getting a lot of feedback. Most of it's good. Some of it is, well, why isn't this on that? And, it, you know, we're, you know, dependent on the quality of the MDH data. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and by the way, and I think they're doing, doing good. And, you know, it's, it's massive. It's a massive job. Well, let's talk about 2023. What are your plans for that and beyond? Well, right now we're looking at the legislative session, which as you've heard is now in session. Uh, we have some threats out there that uh, might uh, see some attempts to take some of these protections away. Uh, so we'll be fighting those tooth and nail. And, uh, but we're also going to, there's going to, there's an interesting initiative uh, legislation that Representative Cleavorn is uh, introducing. And it is uh, to create a, a task force on aging. This state's poorly, poor, in most states are poorly prepared for this enormous growth in the elder population. And uh, so it, that could lead to a, ultimately to a department on aging or could lead to some structural rearrangements within. Uh, but more importantly, it will have a planning focus, which isn't happening now. If we have a very fragmented approach, uh, multiple agencies doing various different things. Um, so we need a lot more cohesion uh, there. There may also be some legislation that's going to uh, mandate financial transparency, especially for the for-profit uh, industry 
uh, people. So I'm not sure if that's going to go or not, but it's, it's a frustration because uh, how do we verify? that they are in the financial aid that, or, you know, need that some say they are, and maybe they are, I don't know, but until you have full disclosure, you don't really know what, what you're going And are our tax dollars being spent mm -hmm. uh, fairly? And who knows what else will come out of the woodwork? Organizationally, we're going to focus on, on building out elder care IQ mm -hmm. and, and then for elder boys, we're going to try to um, get funding so we can do more uh, consulting, counseling uh, of families and residents having issues too. Uh, or we might partner with some other organizations that are already doing that. And that may make sense. We're looking at a lot of things. I had one reporter say, don't you ever rest? no <laughs> actually we don't <laughs> there's not time for that yeah. <laughs> yeah well with our 15 billion dollar surplus there you know i i hope you get funding and to push forward i hope things aren't pulled back uh that were passed prior i you know i personally would like to see um education for not only the professional staff um, and protection, like you said, for kind of the, the whistleblower type thing and, and yep. get that into the educational process or, or who, I think sometimes staff don't feel like they can report because they were told they had to give it to their staff. I know of one person in particular who gave it to five different supervisors. Nobody did anything. And she's just like, I, and I, I'm told I can't go outside. You know, I can't do this. And so um, I think there needs to be more education on a state level of what is, what their power is and yeah. what their alternatives are with that. Um, and I'd love to be able to see more education for families too of what to look for because those eyes and ears are, are so important if we're really going to address this. And that doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a me versus them thing. Mm -hmm. either. I, I think there are ways that, you know, your organization and others can, can work with communities on how do we better address this, but it takes that sitting down and having a conversation about what is going on and getting, getting past kind of almost like the, the, the political crap we have going on where it's party lines. This is about people. This isn't about party lines, you know, and so we have to listen to both sides and then figure out a way to do better. Um, and, and I think so often those lines are set in stone. And when somebody does try to listen, they get their hands slapped because now they're agreeing with somebody else and that's going to look bad for us as a facility. And it's like, not if you're looking at improving your services, you know, not if you're trying to prevent some of these things from happening. I, I don't see how you're going to fix those things without having those conversations. I, I agree. And, you know, we know there's some excellent providers out there. Mm -hmm. We really do. And I wish there were a way that we could acknowledge who they are, you know, specifically, you know, but uh but as soon as you do that, they can have a ch management change 
and everything's different again. So, you know, it, I we hate to mislead somebody. And yeah, and, and same goes with, you know, if they've got a history of some pretty, pretty bad uh, investigation findings, sometimes they make a change that turns things around and, and resolves what the issues were. But I, you know, I'd have to tell you just, and I haven't done a, a, a very uh, extensive look at this, so it's kind of just a, a review. But when I look at these investigations, it's assisted living with memory care that repeatedly come up. Those are the danger organizations. The Those with dementia are, are so vulnerable and so um, easily taken advantage of and uh in in some horrible things so i'm I, i'm if we can get some money so i can really go dig into that i i think it'd be very telling where the problem areas are and um you know though the new law does have specific standards for assisted living with memory care clearly we're having troubles getting that instilled, embedded into these organizations. Well, and I think, and, and I can speak, you know, again, from my own um, situation with my mom, there were times where I seriously wanted to pull her out, but I also knew how difficult that would be on her to start all over. And as a family member, and I'm probably just admitting this to myself now, I didn't want to kill her by the move. Yep. And, and that goes through your mind, you know, this could kill her. She's, she's going to have to start all over. She's not going to know anybody. At least the routines are set and some of the voices she can recognize, even if not the people. And you're, you're looking at those really minute things and trying to figure out what do I do here? And it's very difficult. It's it, very it difficult. Is. It is. And, it, and it's not black and white. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, very difficult. I, I would hope we could have a more constructive uh, dialogue with the industry to the, you know, the long-term care providers, um, it, it, because we do uh, have good relationships with individual providers and, and they are really helpful in in understanding you know their points of view and then they listening to our points of view um that helps but uh i'm getting more and more concerned about the for-profit uh organizations i've uh, I, there seems to be a, a an epidemic of problems care problems with the, these large corporate entities and they're very smart they know how to avoid uh, accountability mm -hmm. and, uh, and we're seeing that actually with elder care iq too because uh now without we well I'll try to make this simple but uh now uh you know a provider used to be that they they could it was the housing the housing services were regulated and then the care services regulated well that legacy still carrying through or there's uh, multiple ownerships and they're different than the name of the place that uh, it operates, you know, the facility. It, it purposely trying to cloud the picture for people not to get a full accurate view of what's, what's really going on. 
Yeah, yeah, that's well, and that would be interesting too if you could break down that ownership and have that on a thing because people are looking at the name of the building that they're looking at and they're not looking at the operational services or they're not looking at you know the the mothership that actually owns them and what's going on or how many times they've changed their names and why is that happening yep um type deal so um but again there there are many out there who you know do a great job but this is something when you're dealing with a loved one you know you've got to do your homework on this and it's like you said the government hasn't made it easy to do and so i'm i'm very hopeful you know, with your, um, your uh, elder care IQ, that that's going to help families and, and possibly help even staff in terms of where do I want to work? Well, you know, it's interestingly, uh, about a year ago, we started um, uh, Spotlight, what we call Spotlight. And it, it's taking a deep dive into one of these investigations. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go to our website at eldervoicefamilyadvocates.org, you can see some of those spotlights. And the Department of Health said they're actually using them for training, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, which is awesome. Also, on Elder Care IQ, we saw a lot of the traffic coming from the actual providers checking themselves out, I'm, I'm sure. And, and that's great because, you know, we, we'd like to encourage and motivate you know, better care. And if this helps motivate better care, wonderful. Yeah. You just don't want it turning into a, a Yelp or Google where they're recruiting people to give them little ticks and five stars and things like that. Because that system sure has gotten manipulated as well, not just in healthcare, but in all areas. You know, well, exactly. The star system is not, it's not good. So no, I, I'm not sure that we'll ever include the star systems, any of them mm -hmm. uh, on this. I, they're just so flawed. Well, and again, I, I think, I think your system could be used as a, as a good recruit um, tool for people who want to, because that's something that they typically don't disclose. And some staff know to check it out, others don't. But where staff could do that on their own, that could be really interesting because people don't want to work where things are a mess and where, where, where it's complicated and you know where you know, they could end up getting in trouble. That's not what they're typically looking for. <laughs> We've seen that, you know, some of the nurses, you know, Fredding, I, I'm going to lose my license because I know what they're telling me to do. Mm -hmm. Not right. And yep. um, yeah. Yeah. So it so much to do. And I, we'd like to really build our relationships with the staff, the direct caregivers too. And whether they're the professionals, licensed people or the unlicensed, they're all important. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I'll just mention this quick, and then I want to um, wrap up and give people your contact information. But again, going back to when my mom was in the nursing home, they always, you know, way back then, they always had family councils. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them don't do that anymore, because it's too much work. And, and they had asked me, you know, would I had one up? And I said, yeah, I will, on one condition. And they're like, well, what is that? I said, I want access to a different director every month. I want housekeeping, I want maintenance, I want nurse, I want social services, I, I want the administrator, um, I, want the, I want the front desk person, 
And they're like, well, why do you want that? I said, because so many of the issues can be handled if they get to the right person. And I can't tell you how comforting it was for family to be able to talk and for, you know, a laundry to say, oh, we can fix that or, or kitchen go, oh my gosh, I had no idea, but that'll be fixed by tomorrow. But avoiding so many of these things and opening up that conversation, instead of having that wall between them, where, where that wall so often is a wall of distrust. And when you can break that down, I mean, we had people volunteering that were master gardeners that saved the budget and enhanced, enhanced the land. I mean, so many different things transpired because of those things, um, you know, from the person doing uh, the hair, you know, for residents. I mean, yeah. it was just, it was amazing. So I think sometimes people think everything has to be really complicated. And a lot of times it really doesn't need to be. It's just figuring out a channel to have that conversation yep. and for everyone to feel safe. So kudos to you, Chris. Um, gosh, you have gotten a lot accomplished in a very, very short time. And I'm, I'm going to be keep my eyes peeled on you for, for <laughs> what happens this year, you know, with, the, with the legislation and, you know, we've got all that money. I'm sure everybody and their brothers going after yes. yep. you know, that extra, but I would love to see it. it it's got, they have to do something in healthcare. I mean, yeah. uh, on multiple levels because, uh, or we're really going to be even a bigger mess than we already are. And, and Lori, you and I both deal with this all the time. And I wish there were a, a solution to this ageism. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's so a part of why it's so easy to ignore the needs of elders or disabled people. Uh, and you know, if we if we had the same concern for our elders that we have for our children, the world would be a way better place. Agree. Well, thank you for your time. If you want to get a hold of Chris, you can email her at Chris K R I S at ElderVoiceFamilyAdvocates.org. You can go to their website, ElderVoiceFamilyAdvocates.org. Um, you can also check out. Uh, eldercareiq.org and they are on Facebook as Elder Voice Advocates and on Twitter as Elder Voice underscore MN. Their phone number is 952-239-6394 and I would encourage you to, to reach out to them. If you have a story to tell, maybe you have some extra money that you want to donate to their organization, maybe you'd like to get involved, you know, please do so. Working together, this is the only way we're going to get things done. So again, Chris, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Lori. I appreciate it. For our listeners, I hope you like, click, and share. Even if you're not in Minnesota, this will give other states ideas of maybe how to collaborate with them and get something like this up and running in their area and to be able to see the the effect and the progression that that Chris and her organizations have made here gives me, I know, great hope. So again, thank you all for uh, listening and we will talk to you next time. Bye now.